Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're about to experience the other society. Prepare yourself for an independent, unscripted, and unedited conversation about the past, present, and future of the relationship between technology and humanity. Our goal is to share information and inspire action so that technology can be utilized to make our world a better place for everyone. The Other Society is not just a vision, it is a movement, and you can join it. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Marco. Sean. Here we are. Here we are. We're, you trying, know, we're trying to be ethical today. Are we? I don't know. We'll, uh, we'll see. We, we'll uh, probably have to define that to start. I was thinking, <laughs> where are we going with this, right? I mean, this is just a quick round uh, here of, uh, of introduction will take place very shortly because people that are looking at the, at the webcast uh, they see that it's not just me, you, and uh, and another guest, and uh, and this is because Sean, this is a one of those the other society panels that we have been envisioning for a while. We are excited to kick off number number two, and yeah, talking about smart cities, in my opinion, was a little easier, not easy, but easier, uh, easier to define, maybe Sean, and uh, it's easier. This, this we need it. to define it. Yeah, it's easy to picture it. <laughs> exactly. So we know cities. Yep. So very quickly for those tuning in to their first, the other society, uh, Marco and I believe that we have an opportunity to shape the world we want living with technology rather than the other way around. And that means each of us has a role to play in how we think about technology in our lives, be it at home or at work or in school or wherever. And uh, we want people to think today. And today we, we did a series on smart cities. And uh, today we're kicking off the series on ethics in society. And Marco, I'm thrilled to have our uh, co-host uh, join us today. He's, in, he's been on the show before, Kevin McNish. Uh, Kevin, thanks for being on. Thanks, Sean. It's a pleasure to be back again. And, uh, and, and all the good work you've done to help bring some amazing people together to help us define what are ethics and how they fit into everything we do with technology. So uh, very quickly, I was about to pass it to, to the uh, amazing folks, but uh, uh, a few words about who Kevin is for those that missed our episodes pre prior. Uh, yeah, sure. So thanks, Sean. So uh, my name is Kevin McMish. I am a uh, academic philosopher turned digital ethics consultant in recent years. I now work for a company called Soprasteria in the UK. Uh, working in a consultancy capacity. But prior to that, I was in academia for 12 years, working in technology and ethics, uh, which is one of the reasons I've been able to collect such great people, uh, far more prestigious than myself for our talk today. And so if I hand over uh, firstly to Merv, uh, and then Merv, you can hand the baton on to somebody else to introduce themselves. So why don't you go ahead and tell us who you are, Merv? Thanks so much, Kevin. My name is Mary Hickok. I'm the founder of AIethicist.org. Like yourself, uh, currently doing consulting and training to public and private organizations on responsible AI uh, design, development, and governance. I teach data science ethics at University of Michigan. 
and I'm also the research director at Center for AI and Digital Policy. That's more the AI policy and regulatory side. So my work intersects in, and complementary in, in many ways. Uh, Peter. Thank you. Thank you, Merv. Yeah, very nice to be here. Uh, I work in the Netherlands at the University of Twente, as you can see behind me, uh, a philosopher by training. Uh, and all my work is actually on the impact of technology on human beings and society and on uh, developing theories to understand the nature of that impact. And the nature of that impact also includes its impact on ethics. Um, and from that background, I'm also quite active in the design lab of the University of Twente, where we try to connect uh, ethics to the design of technologies. Uh, and I will move to the University of Amsterdam, actually, October 1. So probably most people who will hear this <laughs> will hear me as a professor working uh, in Amsterdam. Tom, can I pass the mic to you? Thank you. Um, my name is Tom Sorrell. I'm a professor at University of Warwick in the UK. Um, I'm uh, also trained as a philosopher. Um, I work um, across the subject, not just in technology, but I have worked on technology and ethics a lot, um, mostly connected with the ethics of security, uh, policing, um, and also um, on the ethics of different kinds of fusion of databases. Um, I advise the Home Office in the UK um, on uh, on that kind of thing and biometrics. And I advise uh, one of the uh, largest police forces in the UK also on uh, predictive policing using AI. Um, but I'm, I'm also involved in um, AI applications in medical diagnosis. So uh, it's, it's a range. I think the point you just made Tom, or I don't know if it was a point specifically, but the things you just described, there's so many things that technology touches in our life. And Peter, you, you said impact, and all I can think of is action and consequence. Everything we do has some kind of response, uh, and that, that's certainly true for technology. So, uh, Kevin, when we're looking at ethics, maybe you can kind of get us rolling here on, on the conversation. Um, do we need to start with a definition, perhaps? <laughs> I think that that's always dangerous asking a philosopher for a definition. I could spend an hour talking talking through that one and only get to the first word. Um, I mean, broadly speaking, I look at ethics as being the, the difference between right and wrong, what we do, why we do it, what's motivating, what's justifying our actions and so on. But I, I think particularly when it comes to things like technology and so on, it could be really helpful rather than come out with abstract definitions to try and, and think about hard contexts. Where are we seeing ethics today? Where is technology raising ethical issues for society? And I think that might help it to really sort of solidify in people's minds what we're talking about. So why don't I, I throw that one over and Tom, start with you. What, what do you think is uh, one of the biggest ethical challenges facing society at the moment as a result of technology? Well, I, I think that there are lots of different kinds of uh, issues, not all of them very, uh, very unfamiliar uh, to people who've, who've written about uh, technology. Um, uh, clearly, there's the whole anti-social side of social media uh, and the, uh, the wide use of the internet. Uh, that's uh, uh, very uh, carefully studied and there's legislation now, especially in the UK, uh, to control online harm. But in addition to that, 
I think there are significant challenges that are posed by automation in employment uh, and the way in which um, automation, robotics, AI uh, might uh, make certain kinds of human skill redundant. And um, I think there's an, also an extremely important area to work on, which is the automation of weaponry. Uh, uh, that's particularly uh, interesting um, and very, may be highly relevant uh, given today's um, circumstances. Thanks, Tom. Peter Paul, how about yourself? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I agree with Tom. Maybe I would see impacts of technologies, challenges of technologies in, in two dimensions. So one is the impact they have on society, and the other is maybe really the impact they have on ethics itself and the ways in which we could do ethics in the first place. Right. So the societal impact, I think typically the digital revolution is causing a lot of challenges for our society. Tom already mentioned a few of them. I think also the broader picture of AI, and I'm sure Murph will say more about that. Uh, technologies are starting to change how we think. They help us to, to make sense of the world. They help us to make decisions. They help us to uh, understand each other, ourselves. And that's quite a fundamental impact. Yeah? The basic infrastructure for our cognition is changing. How can we take responsibility for that? Another societal impact for me would also be, of course, uh, the future of the Earth. Uh, the whole phenomenon of global warming and also the uh, well uh, increasing need maybe to tackle that technologically if the policymakers can deal with it should the engineers solve it then so what about climate engineering and the risks involved in that and i think uh, and then i'll stop on top of this these very two examples also show that we might also need to revise uh, our ethical frameworks themselves to deal with this. I mean, when our thinking starts to change as a result of technology, how, how can we use uh, key concepts like autonomy or, I don't know, judgment <laughs> uh, yeah, that are very central in, in ethics? Or when we do geoengineering, what is uh, a moral right? Uh, do ecosystems have moral rights as well? Or how can our democracy open up also to include non-human entities? Should we? And so big challenges for ethics itself as well. Excellent. Thanks, Peter Paul. And Murphy, how about you? What are your views? I totally agree with what Peter Paul and Tom already mentioned. Uh, I can talk about the AI in particular and impact on fundamental rights, democracy and rule of law uh, separately in future questions. But I think if I was to look at a higher at a higher level for me, Techno-solutionism and techno-determinism with these emerging technologies uh, is one of the biggest issues that we have certain technologies developing and we're using it as a hammer to some of society's biggest problems. I think there's benefit to a lot of the technologies where you use it right and in the right place, but our fundamental questions of just because we can, should we, uh, yeah. is this the right solution uh, keep, keeps coming back for me. And then uh, just at a related level, what does that mean for equity and social justice in, in general when you try to embed these technologies in, in, in every way? Does that actually narrow the gap in social just, on social justice and equity? Or are we actually using it to pro protect the status quo at best and or deepen the uh, divides and, and the gaps across the society at worst? Uh, Thank you. Kevin, I, I want to jump in because we may actually 
touched this in other conversation that we had, but you know, I, I like to look at history and and I'm thinking like, have we ever maybe, I don't know, I wasn't there two, three hundred years ago or earlier, but I feel like especially in the last part of our of our past, um, maybe we never talk about ethics as much as we're doing now. I'm wondering if, you know, we, we talk about technology and ethics, but shouldn't have ethics always driven our decision in an ideal world, right? I mean, um, something to think about and maybe is it a wake-up call now that we have to control something that is not just human? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I agree that ethics is... Uh you know, is peculiar to us. Um, I, I think that uh, especially through Catholicism um, and, you know, other religious uh, traditions, there's been a lot of reflection on all kinds of phenomena going back a long way. For example, and this is something Kevin knows a lot about, uh, just war theory, which uh, is, is very old compared uh, to uh, the kind of technology we're discussing. Um, so I'm not sure that ethics is a is a is a kind of new invention. Um, I didn't mean that, but I mean might be more um, discussed in the in the public nowadays. Well, yeah, I mean more people discuss things, I guess, but it's certainly <laughs> been uh, uh, been discussed by intellectuals a lot. Yeah, um, and and I think when it's popularly discussed, when ethics is popularly discussed, um, there's sometimes quite a lot of difficulty. Um, in uh, in figuring out what people uh, mean by it, um, I think. Um, I think that the yeah. whole digital revolution has really, uh, well, given rise to a lot more ethical discussion about technology than it had ever been. I mean, uh, the field that I'm in used to be quite an exotic field within philosophy, philosophy of technology. I mean, that, that, that's not to be taken seriously, right? And now it is mainstream. And I think it is because of the huge impact that the digital revolution yes. has on us. And I think here ethics also sometimes takes an almost political role, right? I mean, the discussion about AI is also typically which ethics? It's not that there is only one ethics. Should we have the ethics of the Western part of the world where basically all your data are owned by big tech companies that try to consume uh, to make you... Uh, buy more stuff <laughs> or should we go to the eastern part of the world where your data are owned by the state or should we have a european model the the third way as they call it yeah. more human-centered ai democratic AI. i mean there are values behind the technologies that are designed and how they are implemented and that's what we are discovering now ever more explicitly i i agree with that but i think that you know there's a tendency to to frame some questions as if they are um largely questions of equity and you know, whether there, there are techno have-nots and techno uh, rich people, techno wealthy people, whether there's big disparities of this kind. I think there are other aspects of ethics, especially in the kind of uh, post-social uh, uh, media um, environment that are very interesting and that are not to do with social structures particularly. You know, one very important element of ethics, in my opinion, in this space is gaming. Um, you know, gaming introduces a lot of bad ethics because gaming gaming introduces the idea of winning over people, shaming people, um, competing with people in lots of different ways, and also doing it anonymously. Um, there's a lot of a kind of gaming culture in, in certain kinds of uh, activity on the part of, say, Anonymous or WikiLeaks. There, there's also um, 
a very uh, a large uh, culture going right back to the foundation of the internet of not taking anything seriously and of sending up, making fun of, 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 of things ad infinitum, uh, often making, making fun of things from an engineer's perspective, which is also a little worries, worrisome. Um, so uh, I, think that, I think there are lots of different elements going on here um, that uh, are not always to do with you know, the kinds of frameworks that we apply broadly in talking about liberalism or talking about the, the conflict between liberalism and, and, and autocracy, let's say. It's, it's a big, huge area full of interest, full of peculiarity, I think. I think I think that that raises a really interesting question, Tom. When you're talking about sort of social media and how people interact, and I don't want to restrict it to this, but take it out more broadly with technology as a whole, and that's say, is it the technology that raises the ethical problems, or is it the people who use the technology that raise the ethical problems? Because we we talk frequently about things like AI ethics or ethics and technology generally, and is it the technology itself that's somehow changing things or is it the people ultimately that are doing it? That's, that's, that's a broad one, but um, I'll throw yeah. it, um, Peter Paul, <laughs> let's throw it to you first. because uh, uh, yeah. The first book that I wrote was called What Things Do. There you <laughs> Technology is doing more than we uh, think they do. And of course, they cannot do things like humans do. I mean, they don't have conscience or something. They, they, they can't make a plan. But I do believe that a lot of the ethical issues that we see in our society are not simply uh, caused by humans. Technologies, as soon as they enter a practice, always start to, to do unexpected things. And I think that's what we have to face. I mean, uh, we never thought that uh, using the fossil fuels at such a scale would now uh, lead to ideas about geoengineering and that it would uh, require that we develop new ethical frameworks to deal with the moral rights of the planet or that we need a value to express the value of the planet, which always used to be simply the self-evident place that we live on and that didn't even uh, need our attention, right? So... Technologies do more than we design into them. Uh, it's not only the use of technologies, it's the design of technologies also that causes things. And there is a lot of yeah, emergent phenomena. As soon as we start using technologies, new things happen that nobody had ever foreseen. And Merv, I, I'd like your perspective on this as well, because as I'm hearing these conversations, uh, all I can go to is the data, right? We have so much more data, perhaps even so much more information now that we think we can make better decisions and perhaps we can make more ethical decisions, more moral decisions, or, or perhaps we're still ignoring the ethics of this and just using data to think, to drive things to somebody's objective. And that's why I asked the question early on, what is the definition? Who's, whose ethics are we building for? Is it the regional ethic, uh, ethical standpoint? Is it a religious ethical standpoint? Is it a, uh, social media <laughs> groups, ethical standpoint, who, who are we serving in our decision making? And more specifically, back to you, Merv, is it, how, how does the data playing a role in all of this? I think we should also uh, approach data and, you know, the, the neutral neutrality of or objectivity of data and technology with a, a grain of salt. Uh, we I think at this point, we're all aware that the data as it relates to humans, whether 
it's it's created by humans, collected by humans. It's about humans. It's about human uh, behavior and interactions. Uh, it's never uh, unbiased. There is always an element of uh, majority and majority ideas usually represent or structural ideas represented in that data. So when we say we should make data-driven decisions, uh, I think there is it's worth uh, challenging that a bit as well. Whose data, who gets, to, who gets to decide upon which data to use, who gets to collect that data and who gets to be surveilled and uh, be controlled by this data all the time. If you're collecting, if you're talking about ethics and impact on society, there's usually uh, a repeating one side that gets to make those decisions, whether it's the states, whether it is the the more powerful with more resources, which are now uh, more of big technology companies as they as they have emerged. There's that one side, and there is the other side who is constantly and increasingly and in a ubiquitous manner now uh, who gets to be impacted and subject to decisions. I mean, we have uh, terms like data subjects right now that we're we were talking about humans as being subject to data and data-driven decisions. Um, so I would like to open up that question a bit and ch challenge the idea of data as a uh, as a raw, neutral, objective uh, concept as well. That's maybe, a great maybe I I could add something to to what Merv has just said. Um, I I was um, at a at a little workshop uh, run for a project of of mine. Uh, in the last couple of days. And one of the issues we were talking about was the control of misinformation about COVID by the very large social media platforms. And they were talking about all of the different things that they were trying to do. But they said, as if this was a pitch for sympathy, just remember the scale of messages on Meta, <laughs> on Facebook. Just remember you know, it's in the hundreds of millions of messages. And to come back to Kevin's question, uh, whose fault is that? That is part of the way these platforms are designed. The more users, the better. And uh, that design of uh, social media to accommodate as many users as possible is a recipe for losing control and uh, indulging uh, these bad aspects of gaming and other misbehavior um, so that the social media companies are reduced in their view uh, to having to, you know, to, to put little patches on things uh, just to keep up. Um, one mustn't pity the social media companies uh, for, um, you know, for the position they're in. It's entirely their own fault and quite predictable, quite predictable. Um, so I think that's an aspect. The sheer scale of data is, con is connected to a lack of control, predictably connected to a lack of control, especially the control of malicious behavior. May I add something to that, Kevin? Would you like to proceed? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm just back from a week in Paris where at UNESCO I'm chairing the World Commission for the Ethical Science and Technology. And uh, I, I just want to bring in that dimension, the, the worldwide dimension of uh, well, these questions. I think what I've really learned there is that we need to tackle uh, the ethical issues on a global scale. 
because geoengineering, the digital revolution, it has an impact all over the world. And what you discover in such a context, of course, is that there is not one single ethical framework. And typically that our current emphasis in the Western world that we all come from is on the individual, individual rights, autonomy, etc. But in uh, almost all other parts of the world, that is much less so. And that's also really interesting. If, if, if we try to reach an, an agreement and, and to write a good report, to bring together the perspective of and the individual and, uh, well, more forms of communal thinking. And of course, the two go together. I would say for us, society consists of individuals uh, often. Uh, and for people from other parts of the world, society is what makes it possible for an individual to live as, a, as an individual. It's, it's two, two, two sides of the same coin. But trying to bring these two perspectives together, I think, is super important. I can see Tom desperate to, to come back at you on that one, Peter Paul. But before he does, I just want to bring Merve back in and just say, because one, one of the things we've seen over the last four years or so, Merve, I think, is that AI ethics has, uh, particularly codes in AI ethics, have proliferated. I think there are over 200 of them now. There's a, there was a website set up a few years back just to chart the number of them coming out. And, of course, these are global AI ethics codes. They're coming from China, they're coming from Africa, they're coming from um, Europe and the States and everywhere else. One of the things that struck me about that is that a lot of the principles they come out with are very, very similar. And so I think it's an interesting, just to push back slightly on Peter Paul's point there about the difference that we're experiencing around the world. What, what would your position be, Merve, on that? Are you seeing these distinctions coming out? Or are you actually seeing a a coming together, a pooling of ideas. I think Charles S. wrote about this about 20 years ago, saying the internet would lead to a, a coalescing of values and virtues. Uh, my platform, AIethicist.org, started years and years ago with that <laughs> in increasing number of principles and frameworks coming up. And uh, I actually looked at a number of them and written about them. Uh, I would disagree a bit that they are global in, uh, they are reflective of all global perspectives and values. Uh, if you look, if you actually look at the numbers and the detail of where these uh, principles um, are coming from, 200 plus, as you mentioned, and who was involved in the development of them and the institutions that developed them and the gender and racial balance or, or breakdown of who was involved in developing them. Uh, you see a very high number uh, or percentage of still uh, Western society, Western values represented in that a very, very high number of uh, males versus females, uh, let alone a further uh, you know, if, you, if you're talking about binaries at, at, at minimum. Uh, and we're seeing a similar thing in terms of uh, the, the policy framework as well. A lot of the policy frameworks that are coming up, uh, AI policy frameworks, are still uh, West-centric uh, and very much focused on European values or US values or, uh, you know, democratic values, which might be the model, but cannot be the, the only model. Um, I think uh, UNESCO is one of the best, better and best examples in this so far as it represents and as its recommendations and its perspectives adopted by 193 countries last year uh, with its AI and ethics recommendations. 
uh, I think we need we really need to uh, be mindful of the different the diversity of our of of the world of our globe and the societies that have been there for thousands of years. Uh, they have survived for a reason, uh, and they're bringing that that value. So just focusing on one part of the world and just these principles and the values proliferating uh, accordingly is, is dangerous for our diversity uh, as well. So yes, there are so many of, of those documents and principles, but I think it, it it's really helpful to look at actually who is behind them and who was involved. Okay, so there's actually almost a quiet Western colonialism going on of values. Very, very much so. Impact. Okay, thank you. So Tom, Tom I, I, I leapt in there and cut you off. You, you go ahead. Yeah, I, I just wanted to um, push back a little bit on, on you know, this, this idea that um, a Western approach to things is necessarily at odds with diversity because there, there isn't a single uh, Western approach to things, you know. Um, there's an extremely varied uh, uh, number of theories uh, in the West including many, for example, uh, uh, Peter Paul was talking about uh, an association of Western theory with individuals. There are plenty of Western theories, I mean European theories, that are nothing of the sort, that are primarily communitarian, um, that, are, that, that say that the individual is less uh, uh, important, even less real uh, than, uh, uh, than communities. Um, Hegel, uh, for example, a good European. Uh, uh, so uh, I think that I think there tends to be a caricature of a single Western approach to many of these questions. Of course, when it comes to regulation and principles that are going to be used actually to regulate the operation of AI, it's going to be a, a certain technologically educated, probably uh, global in the bad sense, uh, elite who are making the decisions and, and who are probably more uniform than Western thought <laughs> actually is. So give, give Western thought a little bit of uh, credit. You know, Aristotle is nothing like Descartes. Um, and uh, there are many, many, many uh, varieties of literature and uh, thought that are nothing to do with this idea that we're all talking about liberalism. I totally Please. agree, but that there is, of course, a difference between our academic tradition and how public discourse takes shape. And uh, uh, then I, I would also totally agree that uh, maybe uh, also within the Western uh, world, there is a lot more variety than that it would only be about liberalism, but the mainstream intellectual discourse and also what I see at UNESCO, what comes from the Western world and what comes from the other four regions of the world is that the story about the individual comes from us. <laughs> and, and that's yes. the, the first thing that we say, <laughs> uh, which but, is but not that, wrong. Yeah. But that may be because of a, of a homogenous, homogenization that takes place when global elites talk to one another. They occupy niches that are developed by a certain fairly artificial, uh, you know, uh, mapping of positions. 
Um, and it's maybe also an intellectual discourse that is sometimes too remote from what uh, people in the street are really thinking about. Sure, I, mean, I actually sure. did an analysis of the uh, app that was introduced by the sure. government in, 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 uh, in the Netherlands to detect uh, if you could have been affected with the virus. And then uh, we had an expert uh, uh, panel and that was only about autonomy and freedom and it should be voluntary. But when we asked people in the street, they said, oh, all the privacy measures in the app are a reason not to use it because we do want to share our uh, uh, place and our own location data so that yeah. the health authorities can know where the virus is. And we do want to share the list of contacts that we have so that people can get a notification. So also within the Western world, of course, there is solidarity and there, there is community thinking. Yeah. So Kevin, I, I, I want to I want to bring it to you because I know we have a question on on uh, how society can can be part of this, right? Kind of to your other point, but in a different way, tech, is technology driving or, or society driving? Because I, I look at this and I think if you, if you look at how a company defines its business, they'll, they'll set up a vision statement, right? With a grand scheme or a grand view of what they want to be. And that's pretty stable. And then they'll create a mission statement that's a little more fluid, might look three to five years out and might change over time. I'm, I'm wondering, do we as a society have a vision for what ethics are? And uh, is there a mission that we follow that might change over time for what ethics look like? And do we have to compromise perhaps even in some of our ethical decisions to address near-term challenges versus long-term sustainability? And so to, maybe to bring it to the third question you have, um, how does society actually help shape that? Or who, who is shaping that? Is it the tech companies or technology or the society themselves absolutely sean i mean yeah you've touched on some really fundamental issues there haven't you <laughs> with how how society engages with this and one of the things i was reflecting on as we've been talking uh you know going going back to some of those issues around ethics and marco raised the issue about history and so on when the when the car the automobile was first introduced it was seen as an environmental benefit to society because it didn't leave the mess that horses left and cars didn't typically die in the street and have to be left for about a week before you then removed the carcass. Um, and so everyone thought this was fantastic and cars were coming along and changing this. And, and obviously now we see the impact of the internal combustion engine and what that's, the, the impact that's had on the environment in a totally different way. But in the meantime, the car has just changed society so radically in ways that we couldn't have imagined before, uh, whereby you know, it, it just doesn't take too much to think about just driving for an hour to go somewhere um, or commuting long distances into work. And similarly, uh, Peter Paul was just talking about the track and trace apps and some of the issues around track and trace. You go back 100 years to the Spanish flu and the impact that had on society and now look at how we've responded, possibly taking in Murphy's earlier point about techno-determinism, um, with looking to apps, looking to technology to try and help us with these, uh, with the pandemic. Uh, and so there's a question there whether it was necessary or not. But I think it's just really interesting to see that interaction between society and technology over time, that it's not, it, it's not a linear progression. <laughs> Would that it were, and that society's attitudes are also not linear. 
uh, they tend to shape, they tend to change. So I was living in the States when 9-11 happened. And shortly after 9-11, there was an attitude of privacy, schmivacy, let's throw privacy out the window. We just need to catch the guys who are behind 9-11. And the intelligence agencies should have as much access as they want to everybody's information. This picks up on some of Tom's stuff about security. You know, 11 years later, Edward Snowden comes along and all of a sudden the pendulum pivots in entirely the opposite direction. And now there's an attitude that uh, the intelligence agencies have gone too far. Um, and then probably I think there was a survey about five years after Snowden where things started to level back out again. So it's very, very difficult to try and establish, you say, what society believes and where society thinks it's going. I'll let that one hang. Somebody looks like Tom, you look like you wanted to come in. Um, well, uh, it seems to me that one of the one of the things that society and intellectuals can both latch on to is the concept of harm and also to examples of harm. So, you know, to, to take some examples that are very current in Britain at the moment, um, the fact that some uh, children uh, are got to commit suicide uh, because of the... Um, of the uh, the way that their body image is is mocked, or their uh, posts on social media are mocked, uh, the the way people are deprecated, uh, uh, for example, th that kind of thing. The fact the fact that people who are suicidal are encouraged uh, by uh, by certain groups on the internet to commit suicide, as if they were standing at the bottom of a building and somebody was on a ledge. Uh, uh, about to jump off, uh, this, the, this social media acts just like the crowd at the bottom of the building saying, jump, jump. And why? For my personal entertainment, it seems. So if we come up with, you know, with some examples of things that are regarded as harmful, that is where ethics comes in. Ethics is largely to do with harm. It's not only to do with harm, but it's largely to do with harm. And that's, I think, where society can also, um, you know, profitably uh, uh, discuss things. And harm means, you know, injury, uh, uh, reducing capacity, uh, taking away life, um, and other things. You mentioned, Kevin, sorry to cut you in, but uh, you, mentioned, you, know, uh, you mentioned the interactions between society and technology and, and Peter Paul kind of alluded to the socio-technical aspects of, of these systems, you know, where we, where we need to recognize how these bigger technologies, uh, technological systems operate in a larger societal context and becoming very ubiquitous in our lives, uh, you know, where we cannot really purely uh, depend on technically based uh, uh, solutions to solve our problems and we need to be really mindful of the feedback loop between technology and, and, and society where you put out a technology uh, like AI as they manifest themselves for example in mass surveillance or social media platforms uh, that technology eventually starts shaping the behavior of those who are interacting with it or who are being subject to it. 
And then that behavior becomes data points and creates this feedback loop for the future outcomes of the technology as well. For example, if you know that you're going to be subject to uh, facial recognition technology, you know, 24-7 almost, uh, and someone is going to know where you are, where you've been all the time, you might you might change your behavior, be more controlling of what where you've been, what you said. Similarly, if you know that your future employers will have access to every single social media posts uh, and public information that you put out and make their decisions about that, you might change your behavior and kind of self-filter. Tom said he's involved in, in predictive policing. There is a lot of you know interaction and feedback loops between how technology starts impacting and shaping the policing behavior and what that means for society. I think we're looking at a bigger um, context, like how these big technologies operate in a bigger context and what that means for society's future as well. Exactly. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, maybe I would say that indeed, I would then say also in that larger context, one role for ethics is to somehow prevent harm. Uh, but I also like uh, to, to emphasize that ethics can also do something more positive. Eh? So you could say negative ethics tries to keep out what we do not want, but there's also something like positive ethics that tries to shape the conditions for what we do want, more value-based ethics. Eh? And I would also see all the attempts to do value-based design, guidance ethics, etc., as ways to not only make sure that we do not see too many accidents, too many things that we do not want, but that we uh, accept the fact that we live in a technological world we cannot avoid uh, the influence of technology on human beings and on society. And we have to make sure that the values that we really cherish, that we find important, that we connect them to the design, the implementation, and the use of new technologies. So maybe that's what this podcast ultimately is about, actually, uh, Karen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Peter Paul. That's a great place, I think, to close, because I think a lot of what we're going to be dealing with in the rest of the series is precisely that question about how do we start to design in ethics to our technologies? As Tom said, if you take the design of um, social media, it's, it's designed in such a way that it encourages this sort of, you know, real life as entertainment kind of perspective. Um, or as Merv said, the design of some of these uh, codes of conduct and whatever can bring in, in a sort of neo-colonial fashion, some views and attitudes which are typical of certain elite groups within certain societies, I think. And so I, I think you're spot on, Peter Paul, that, that there's that question about how do we put the, I suppose, how do we put the guardrails in place? How do we ensure that when, when we go forward, we can limit the harm, as Tom says, that we're, that we're risking and that we can open up the guardrails for the, the, the future life that we're looking for and that we would want for society? And this is, Kevin, exactly what we will be exploring in the future. I, I was afraid that this was going to be a very wide conversation and of course 40 minutes or 45 minutes is not it's not even scratching the surface but i think it was a great a great start a lot of uh direction that we can follow in our future conversation on the topic and uh, and again the next one will focus more on the technology side of uh, of the ethics and uh, and the digital society and then the next one, the third, will be more focused on the societal aspect of, of that. So 
this was a great start. I am definitely here for for much more. I'm starving for more, actually. Okay. And I want to thank you all for your time. Uh, this was incredible, incredible. Welcome. Yeah, and I'd say a ton, a ton of uh, topics within this conversation. I, 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 I suspect Marco, we're going to be looking back and referring to this this introduction episode many, many times. It's a gremlin episode. We'll, get, we'll get many, many more multiplying. Yeah. And Kevin, I just want to say you, you painted the visual picture of guardrails. And for me, those are meant to be skateboarded and snowboarded on. So <laughs> you kind of push, push the limits. With, with Always the, push the edges, Sean. That's right. Is so, it through Californian? That's right. Yeah. So... For those watching or listening, uh, there'll be links in the show notes for this episode and on the series page uh, for our guests' profiles, and you can connect with them there if you have questions or thoughts and uh, other resources that they and uh, we find interesting and think will help you continue, or at least hopefully this started you thinking, and hopefully this, uh, those links will help continue uh, the thought process of a better society with ethics in our digital world. So thanks everybody for listening. Stay tuned to more The Other Society here on ITSP Magazine. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Other Society. If you learned something new and this discussion made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.